Speaking of Mysteries. I'm Nancy Clare, and today I'm joined by Jennifer Hillier to talk about Things We Do in the Dark, her seventh crime fiction novel. Welcome to the podcast, Jennifer. Thank you so much, Nancy, for having me. And I did pronounce your last name correctly? You did. It's perfect. It's funny, though, because Canadians will say Hillier, um, thinking maybe it's French or French-Canadian, but it's an English name, so it's Hillier, but you did it perfectly. <laughs> it's kind of... <laughs> My origins. <laughs> the, the first question I want to ask is about the title and more specifically about the length of the title. Your previous <laughs> novels have been have had very economical titles. Creep, Freak, Wonderland, Little Secrets, and then along comes Things We Do in the Dark, mm -hmm. so, which is a great title, but a departure. So can, can you talk about that? It's uh, no one's ever asked me that question before. Um, I feel like when my I my work started, here is done. <laughs> <laughs> like really, no one's ever pointed that out. Um, but I'm aware of it. When I first started writing back, I think it was 2010. I felt like short, punchy names were good for thrillers, and so I really made an effort to try to find, you know, very short words, and it was just one word title. Um, even the Butcher, which is my third book, was a departure because of like that's two words. But for this book, right, uh, for this book, my, I, I just felt like it was time to be a bit more creative with the titles. I noticed that um, other people were getting longer with their titles. It didn't seem to be an issue. Although I had heard that the longer the title, the harder it is to fit on a book cover, right? So then I, I didn't know if they'd go for it. But I got really attached to the title early. Um, and that only happens a couple of times to me. But I wanted the title and my original working title when I submitted the book to my editor was The Things We Do in the Dark, which is the name of the podcast in the book. And of course it was like, oh, that's seven words. That's really long. And I'm like, but no, 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 here's some books with, you know, long titles as well. And I sent them some idea, like some comps covers and it went back and forth, round and round, round and round. And then they said, okay, we'll call it Things We Do in the Dark. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> That, that's good. That's fine. That's good. <laughs> so it is a shorter title than what I proposed, but I just, I don't know. I don't know if it's a, I think as a writer, I'm evolving a little bit and I'm, this is one of the very, to me, one of the, the things that symbolizes that, even though no one else, but you has picked up on it. <laughs> so things we do in the dark, it's also the kind of title that would be naughty, but the things we do in the dark, at least in your story, have more to do with secrets we keep or try to keep than amorous exploits. So I, I should say that this book is one of those challenging stories where to say too much would ruin it for readers. So we're gonna dance around certain things. And this is one of the dance steps. Yes. We're gonna talk about <laughs> uh, this secrets and it's not an unusual uh device for a, a mystery a thriller domestic mm -hmm. suspense but talk about uh secrets in general and then we'll talk about paris peralta's secrets mm -hmm. in particular you know i think i've been writing about secrets for a really long time um and in my earlier work it was really more i like to talk about and kind of investigate the differences um, between people's public 
personas and their private lives. Because I think all of us, we, there's, a, there's a certain way we want to present ourselves to the world. We do that on Instagram and Facebook and, and we curate our lives a certain way to give people the impression of who we are. And then there's who we actually are when nobody's looking. And so all of my books, I think up until now even, have a theme where the, the main character is one way to the public and then one way when she's alone. And so Things We Do in the Dark is definitely very much in keeping with that theme. Um, because I'm, and part of it too is I'm nosy in my real life. And I like to know what people are doing. You know, I find it interesting to know who's dating who and, and how intimate are those relationships and who are they with before. And, you know, and I feel like, I think my readers kind of are interested in knowing that too. And so it's, the secrets part is always a, a it always informs the character, but I also think it's realistic because all of us have things that we don't tell other people and it's unique to each relationship. There are things that I won't tell my mom, but I'll tell my husband and things that I'll tell my girlfriend, but I won't tell my husband. And I think all of that is really normal, you know, but if, you, if, they're, if they're deadly secrets and that kind of, which they are in books, right, it kicks it up a notch. <laughs> but I'm always fascinated by what people aren't telling me. That's more interesting than what people do tell me. Well, this has been pointed out and I thought, uh, I think it was uh, a tweet by Julia Dahl, but it's also something I noticed, which is things we do in the I'm dark may have just one of the best opening sentences, not just this year, but ever. <laughs> And I'm gonna read it. There's a time and place for erect nipples, but the back of a Seattle police car definitely isn't it. I have a, I have a feeling this sentence came to you as a complete package. This, it came to you just like that. Am it I wrong? It really did. No, you're not wrong. It wasn't my original opening line. And I can't remember now because I went through so many drafts of this book, what that opening line originally was. But when I figured out the structure of the book and I knew that it was going to open with Paris's arrest and I put myself in her position and she's, you know, she's sitting in the back of a cop car. What is she thinking about? <laughs> what is she feeling in this moment? That was the first thing that popped into my mind and I wrote it down and I, I laughed to myself as you do when you are entertaining yourself <laughs> and really didn't think that it would stay. I wasn't sure if my editor would go for it or if that was a little too provocative or do we really want nipples dropped in the first sentence of this book? Um, but I thought, whatever, I'm going to put it in there because I like it. And he, when he, when I got his notes back, he said he had a big laugh <laughs> when he started reading the book and it really caught his attention and it stuck and who knew um but that's the thing about writing right is the thing that often you know delights the writer if we're lucky will also delight the reader so this is one of those things where I just like I'm just gonna go with it and see what happens well the, what I had what I had written to myself in my notes was I think it's a great way to introduce Paris Peralta she of the erect nipples <laughs> and the story's protagonist and I say that because Paris, although she's keeping a very big secret, is pretty honest with herself. Mm -hmm. She, you know, she, she may be bullshitting the world. Yeah. But not herself. No, no. And I, I, none of my characters ever really do. You know, I know that there's a lot of ways to keep secrets from readers and, um, and all of them are effective. You know, you can have a reader that has, or a protagonist that has amnesia or a protagonist that drinks or does drugs and doesn't remember things. And so therefore the reader doesn't know these things, but I've never um, relied on those myself. And I've always 
I've always wanted my characters to be very self-aware of the things that they're doing. I think it helps them be relatable when they're aware, when they're being, like you said, full of shit, right? But it doesn't mean they still won't be full of shit. You know, they're aware of what their shortcomings are, but it doesn't mean they're working on them necessarily. They just are aware of it. And so for Paris, she's full of secrets. She's aware. She carries that with her every day of her life and they inform who she is in the present, all the things that she's trying to hide you know, about the past, but she's aware of them. You know, she just doesn't want to tell you what they are. And that's the one thing that I really tried to make clear is she's, she's not subconsciously keeping things from you. She's actively keeping things from you. You know, she really doesn't want you to know. So from the beginning, it's clear that what we do in the dark is about when expectations go awry. Uh, when Paris married a famous man who was 30 years her senior, uh, who had famously retired, she mm-hmm. expected to live outside the limelight. And it's sort of yeah. the ultimate make a plan and God laughs. That's right. Story in, in, in how it gets underway. So that's an interesting kind of way into this, I think. Was it that Thank way you. from the beginning? No, no. I, I had started the story in many different places to try to figure out what the best way to tell it was. Because as you know, the book um, has several different timelines, like three really. And I, you know, do I tell that story linearly or is it more fun to jump around? But sometimes when you jump around, the risk is that you lose the reader. It can be a lot to process. But for Paris, you know, her marrying Jimmy, who's, as you said, a retired comedian, 30 years older than she is, um, really did say a lot about who she was as a person. And when you dive into her past and you find out what some of her secrets are, you kind of see where that, that maybe attraction of that's the right word to older men comes from. You might be able to kind of see the pattern there, but she really did marry him thinking that his celebrity life was done because he was so sure that it was done. You know, he had walked away from it. He had retired. He cashed out. He was living a quiet life. He moved back to Seattle um, no plans to do anything else with, with, like with comedy or acting. So she was going to settle into this sort of like, you know, this under the radar life, which she had been living anyway. Um, and now she had a partner to do with. So it was her worst nightmare when Jimmy decided that he wanted to do comedy again. And of course being Jimmy doing it in a really big way by getting like a Netflix like deal. Um, and you know, and all of a sudden there he is in the spotlight everybody paying attention, their wedding makes page six. <laughs> she could not have been more horrified that those things played out. She was, you know, there's a lot of things you can say about Paris, but the one thing she wasn't doing was chasing fame. <laughs> well, and, and I got to say, uh, it, it doesn't look good for Paris at the beginning of the book. She's found uh, holding it. She's found by the police. She's holding a straight razor. She's soaked in her husband's blood mm. and she's uh, standing next to his corpse in the bathtub. Mm-hmm. So you it talked about as yeah, it looked bad. It, it, the optics were difficult, terrible. Yeah, <laughs> um, but I'm always interested when I talk to writers. You know, was it your plan to put your character in such a literal, literal and figurative bloody mess at the beginning? And and you had mentioned how you had worked with the structure of your book and the timeline. Mm-hmm. So was this. Was it your intention to just stick her in the middle of it at the get-go and go from there? No, that that definitely came up later. You know, I wrote the book. Um, 
I write not linearly and I don't outline. I wish I could, but it's never worked for me. And so when I was writing this book, I wrote all of the things I could see. And I see things at different times. I was kind of bouncing back and forth between a couple of different timelines and a couple of different characters. And I've learned to trust that in the end, it will all come together. But for a good, I would say, eight months of this book, I was flying blind, writing all these words down and not really knowing what the story was going to be. I just felt strongly that I had to say this about Paris and this about Jimmy and this about Drew. And I probably got to about 70, 80,000 words, which is typical. And the novels for me are about 100,000 words long. So I'm like three quarters of the way through. And I'm like, okay, what am I trying to say? You know, and I do this with every, like, what is it? What, okay, what am I, what is the gist of this, right? And so then I started to kind of play, you know, shuffle, right? Things were moving around. Um, I opened with a different character at the beginning. I opened at a different timeline. And I would send these drafts to my editor. And he was very supportive. And he would go, yeah, that's great. That works. That's great. And then I would get it back. And I'd be like, no, <laughs> I don't like it. This, there's something missing. And I would shuffle it again and then send him, what do you think of this one? And he's like, yeah, great, good, keep going. And I get it back. No, this isn't working. And so um, the scene for, for Paris and Jimmy in the bathtub was originally written probably halfway or two thirds of the way through the novel. Um, but when I moved things around and I wanted to start in present day, it felt like the best jumping off point. You know, I wanted to, I wanted the reader to have the immediate question of did she or didn't she do this? And I think that's, that's fun. It's fun for a, a thriller reader to wonder, you know, did she or didn't she do this? And to be honest too, I didn't know whether she did or didn't do it for a long time. I really didn't. I, I, I really wasn't sure myself <laughs> until I wrote it through and I'm like, oh, that's what happened. Okay, cool. <laughs> All will be revealed. All will be revealed. Yes. I surprise myself when I'm working. So, <laughs> well, Jimmy's death isn't, and you're going to have to forgive me. Uh, so cut and dried. Uh, he has a history of substance abuse. Mm -hmm. They have been using again. And according to his mm -hmm. longtime assistant had previously attempted suicide. So it's possible that Paris's story is true, that she came into the bathroom, the floor was wet, she slipped, she hit her head, she knocked herself out, she instinctively picked up the razor, and she's covered in blood. Maybe, right. kind of. Maybe, yeah. And that might have fit fine until her past is revealed, <laughs> which may hint that, oh, maybe that's not what happened. You know, and so that's where the secrets part comes in, because it's if it was just, you know, if she was just a regular person without these uh, crazy secrets that she's hiding, that would have been maybe more plausible from the get go, you know, but um, of course, you know, the things you can't run away from from yourself, as I mentioned in the book, wherever you go, there you are. And so she's carrying everything with her, every every life she lives. And this is in the in the press material, so I feel comfortable saying that uh, in talking about this particular subject, this isn't Paris's first encounter with murder, because mm -hmm. Paris has secrets, <clears throat> and secrets are hard to keep in this overexposed age of social media. But what is so compelling about Paris is that it's possible that a character will do everything she can to keep her secrets where they belong and buried in the past. So. I guess this is my question. Was it hard to make Paris both sympathetic 
to the reader because she is a very sympathetic character and a potential suspect of someone who may have murdered not once, but twice. Mm-hmm. It, it's always challenging because, you know, it's, I've learned a long time ago not to worry too much about characters being likable. It's nice when they are, but I, I've learned that I think what's more interesting is when, when characters are compelling, you know, and, and we have something to learn from them. And if they're relatable, even if they're not likable, but there's something about them that we can connect with. I think for Paris, she has an interesting life. And I wanted really to convey to the reader how she's emotionally processing the things that have happened to her and the things that are continuing to happen to her. And I think I have a theory that every person, no matter how upstanding and moral they might be, and most of us are, are capable of killing someone if we had to. I, I, that's my theory, that if the right set of circumstances unique to you presented themselves, that you would be capable of killing another human being, whether it's in self-defense, whether it's in an absolute blind rage, whether it's in a drunken frenzy, whatever it might be, I think all of us as humans are capable of making a terrible mistake. So going on that premise, when I wrote Paris, that's her human uh, side of her is that, you know, she's an upstanding citizen. She has a job, she pays her bills, but she's also capable of making terrible mistakes. Um, She's also someone who's had things potentially done to her in the past and is reacting from that. You know, and I think that's part of the human experience is that we're all capable of something terrible if, if the situation was there, you know, and I, you hope that she's relatable in the end and that, and that readers will find her sympathetic, but um, I wanted her to be really honest with the reader to say, yes, this is what's happened. Here's what led to that. And then you decide how you feel about it. I'm not going to control how you feel about it. You know, cause as a reader myself, I don't like it when I'm told how to feel about something. And so I, I really try to not do that in my own work. I try to let the reader decide for themselves how they feel about a character. So I want to go back to social media, uh, mm-hmm. it, specifically in this novel. In this uh, novel, it's, it's a dual-edged sword. And I apologize for more cutting-edge comparisons. I can't <laughs> help myself. But social media is almost always portrayed in novels as an unambiguous evil. Mm -hmm. Paris's exposure as Jimmy's wife on Instagram has brought out threats. It's also brought up possible salvation. So is social media like anything else? Is it neutral in and of itself with potential for good and evil? And especially in terms of your book. It's, It's hard to avoid social media in a book when I'm writing about the present because so many of us use it. And it's like writing about, you know, cell phones and texting. It's very hard to write a novel set in present day where the characters don't communicate via text. Um, I don't know how realistic that would be. So I think, I think it's, 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 yeah, it's what you said. It's, it's kind of a necessary evil, but it's also capable of good things. Um, It's a way to connect people. It's a way to stay in touch with people that you care about that you might not otherwise be able to keep up with. But we also are compelled to lie a little bit on social media because you don't want everyone to know all your cobwebs, all your skeletons in the closet. And we all do it. You know, it may just be like 
photoshopping out a zit that you just don't want on Instagram, <laughs> you know, or filtering so that the sky looks bluer wherever you are because that you want people to know what, what a good time you're having. But there, it's like micro lies. And I think that it can get away from people, you know, and I think for women, especially if you follow a lot of women's celebrities, there's such pressure on them to be perfect, bikini ready, you know, um, perfect skin, perfect hair, perfect makeup. And we don't look like that every day. And so I think it encourages us to, to tell little lies about who we are. So I can, I can see the good and bad for sure, but I would probably skew more towards the bad, honestly, because as a writer, you know, you have to put yourself out there. It's a lot of work. It takes up a lot of time. I love the expression micro lies and I am going to shamelessly <laughs> steal it. Um, the other, the other sort of not necessarily social media, but new platform is podcasting. I mentioned to you that I recently uh, interviewed Denise Mina, who's now done two books involving her accidental podcasting team of Anna and Finn uh, in confidence. And we had, and I'm a podcaster, you're on a podcast. So obviously mm -hmm. I'm slightly <laughs> obsessed with podcasts, but I've also been doing this podcast now for 10 years. So you wow. know, I think of myself as a bit of an OG. You're the OG, uh, yeah. Not the OG, but an OG. <laughs> and when you're constructing a story, and Drew is a podcaster, someone from uh, uh, Paris's past, also a former journalist, many podcasters, myself included, find themselves in that category. What sort of vehicle is that as, I mean, is to you, is this like the new investigative journalist? Is it the new um, uh, PI? Uh, you know, how does it structurally fit into your story to have a character be a podcaster? Of course, the name of his podcast is The Things We Do <laughs> in the Dark, uh, which is an excellent name. I wish I had thought of it. Um, tell me about Drew and, and his place and what he does and why that fits in the story. Yeah, Without Drew, any spoilers. Right. Drew has long been a fan of true crime, um, which is a, a kind of inspired by me because I've been following true crime since I was a teenager, just like Drew. And he wanted to be a reporter, a journalist, and he, and he went and did that. Um, but, you know, the, the news business is hard and, and newspapers, there's so few now. A lot of the smaller papers have gone the way of the dinosaurs. Um, and he had to pivot. He still wanted to chase stories and he still wanted to, you know, talk to people involved in interesting cases. But how to do that if you don't have a, a print medium to do that, which is how he was trained. And so he pivoted to podcasting by accident. He um, was writing about a, uh, an actual real life case here in Toronto, a murdered billionaire couple. It's a real story and they still haven't solved it. Um, and in the book, he's invited to talk about it on national public radio um, in Canada. And people are all over this, you know, listening to him talk and, and he's popular. They bring him back a few more times and he's like, hey, maybe I'll do a podcast. Um, and so in his pursuit to find out the truth about a case um, that really went unsolved back in the 90s, you know, at his heart, he always wants to chase the story. You know, that's kind of in his blood. He wants to be the one to find out what really happened. And I think 
I, I think if without Drew looking for truth, I think the story would lose some momentum. You know, I think it's nice to view the characters outside of themselves. And Drew provided that perspective. You know, um, when you're in Paris's head all of the time, you're only seeing the world through how she sees it. And to step out into Drew's perspective for a time, I think helps the reader see who she is in a more complete way, you know, without her feeling like I'm telling you this and I'm keeping a secret. And, and then you have Drew going, what are these secrets and what do they have to do with, you know, with what's happening right now? So, I mean, it, it's fun writing from Drew's perspective and, you know, I'm a big fan of, of podcasts. I listen to them when I go on walks. Um, and, and I love that there are so many to choose from and, and I, you know, some of my favorite things are I've learned from podcasts. So it was nice. And I'd never written one into a book before. And I, I honestly don't know anything, the technical side of podcasting. I just know it as a listener. And I imagine that if I had a character named Drew, he would have a nice podcasty voice and he would just talk to you conversationally about all of these really dark things. You are an Asian Canadian, as is your mm -hmm. character, Paris. And I found your descriptions of the attitudes towards the treatment of Asian Canadians and Asian Americans, especially females, compelling, compelling and not a little dis disturbing. Um, mm -hmm. I keep thinking, in spite of my advanced age, I keep thinking that we're beyond this and we're not, are we? No, we're not. I mean, there's been progress and I, and I, you know, can say that even like there's a, there's a, a bit in the book about Jimmy making a joke about Asians and Asian wasn't the word that he used. Right. <laughs> and so this was something he did back in the nineties. And of course, when he decides to make his comeback, someone digs out that clip of him making fun of Asians, but not using the word Asian, using a racist term. And the internet, you know, goes crazy as it does. Um, and his assistant is of course, where you're going to get canceled. Like this thing that you said 20 years ago, 30 years ago is going to get you canceled now. And it's, there are things that, that I experienced growing up in Toronto. Toronto is very multicultural, as you know, being Canadian. Um, and it was very normal for me to, to have, um, neighbors and friends and classmates from all different, all different backgrounds, but, um, there were stereotypes and there still are. And where we are now, I think is we're very conscious of not using those stereotypes anymore. We're conscious of our language, of the way we address people, introduce people, write about our characters and books that I don't know for me when I was, let's say 16, 17, growing up in Toronto, that I even really paid attention to. It was very normal for me um, as a young, as a teenager, a young woman to be fetishized by, by white men. It was very normal to have guys want to date me simply because I was Asian, because it was a, it was a, a selling point for them in terms of what they were looking for. And now, of course, that would be very offensive. But at the time, it, it felt like that's what, that's what they did, you know, and, and my, I, my best friend is Chinese and we were used to it. And I, you know, I have to confess there were times and maybe we played into it a little bit because it, it, it was what we did, you know, and, and, and so we're not helping our cause here. It's just, it, it felt like a different world back then. And I think now we're very, very aware that those things are not okay. And, and, you, and I can now looking back, see the harm in that, like more than I ever really paid attention to before. But I wanted to address it in the book as well, because, you know, there's, there's a part of the book that takes place in a strip club and the two Asian strippers that work there, that dance there 
are definitely using their Asianness as a way to appeal to customers, to men, because it sets them apart from the other dancers and they use that to their advantage. Um, but it can go too far. You can use all kinds of inappropriate names to call people. And I've been called those names too growing up. And there were times when I was offended by it and times that I did not know to be offended by it. And then my mom, who is from the Philippines, and she and my dad moved to Canada in early 1970s, they experienced a whole different level of racism. And she would tell me these stories about, about how they would get called names, how they wouldn't be served in restaurants, things like that. Um, but it's funny because she's, my mom is, you know, she's 80 now, so that she was in her, you know, 20s back then. When she talks about it, um, even she was like, well, it was how things were back then. And we were immigrants and we were new to the country. We just wanted to fit in. We didn't want to uh, make waves or fight with people or be confrontational. You know, we kept our heads down and, and we felt like we were guests of the country. And so we never fought back. Um, and it's funny because my son is, is half Asian and I would never, I would never tell him to do that. You know, I would never tell him to keep his head down and not make waves. Like if someone is saying something inappropriate, make waves. <laughs> I will be the bigger wave behind you, backing you up, make all the waves. But it was a different time. And so when I was growing up, I learned to be very, not submissive, but very quiet and very just sort of go with it. Don't say anything. Don't make a fuss. Um, but things are different. And so I wanted the book to show that part of it um, and not in order to send any kind of social message necessarily, but again, it's part of who the characters are, you know, and for Paris, especially, um, you know, she moves through the world as a Filipino woman and that's how people see her. And, uh, and it would definitely, that's the lens that she sees the world through. And so there, there's no way to separate the two. Well, I think uh, for me, and, and hearing your description is very helpful, it shows an evolution without being message heavy. It shows an evolution of the character. This is the way it was then. And this is the arc of history that's hopefully moving towards justice. Mm -hmm. There are times when mm -hmm. I think that's not happening. But <laughs> yes, I, I like to be... I like to remain optimistic. It's sometimes right. a challenge, but right. But you know that, and that is was interesting that that Jimmy's assistant thought that too. And the idea that people do get canceled for the mistakes they made in the past is also mm -hmm. a good example that we've all made mistakes in the past. We've yes. all said and done things in less enlightened times. Yeah, that I I think it's 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 difficult to hold someone to account when he or she didn't know better. It's more of a cultural ickiness than evil. It is. It is. And it, yeah, it is. And it, and it does harm in different ways. Um, by, I, I think for me growing up, you know, I have an example of, of when I was five and I was in kindergarten and they were doing a, a Christmas pageant back when you could celebrate Christmas in public school, <laughs> that's changed too. Um, we were doing a Christmas pageant in school and one of the teachers came to the kindergarten classroom looking for angels. She wanted to choose six angels to be in the Christmas pageant. And of course, every little girl wanted to be an angel and wear, you know, the wings and a little, you know, tinsel halo. 
and we all volunteered and she only chose uh, little blonde girls. Um, the, the six girls in the class that all had blonde hair were the ones that were chosen as angels and the rest of us, all different ethnicities, uh, Indian, Asian, black, did not get picked. And I remember at the time being disappointed, but also accepting it as, well, that's how it is. You know, angels are blonde and with and pink cheeks and fair skinned. And so I didn't get picked because I don't look like that. Um, of course, now I would be outraged if my son wanted to be an angel and didn't get picked because he, <laughs> because he didn't have blonde hair and blue eyes. Um, I think those things harm us. And I think we grew up believing we're less than, and I think we grew up believing that we have been othered and that we're different and not in a good way. We're different in a bad way. We're different in a, in a, you're not as worthy way. But I also believe that people can grow. And I think it's completely fair to call out past mistakes and to say, you did this awful thing 20 years ago and it was really offensive and you deserve to be you know, given some shit for that. But I, at the same time, also believe that that person should be given the opportunity to learn from that and evolve. I don't think it's fair to do one without the other. You know, if you're going to come for somebody for a mistake that they made, you also need to give a tiny bit of space for them to express an apology, to demonstrate that they're wanting to learn and then to prove that they are learning. I think that's fair. And that's how I feel about it. I, I, I don't love, I, I actually don't love the idea of cancel culture at all. I think it's a very scary thing. And of course, that's the crux of your book. Mm-hmm. In a nutshell, that very much you, can't so. be kept, you can't be captive by the mistakes of, of your past. That's right. Even that's when right. it seems like they might have repeated themselves. That's right. That's right. It's, it's keeping an open mind and allowing someone to tell you what happened. You know, um, but you know, there, there's always these examples of, of celebrities who do get called out, for instance, and they don't apologize and they double down. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's not good. And so then, okay, you're going to get canceled probably because you're not willing. At to the listen. same time, they are who they are, and we right. have the right, and we have the right to cancel them, and we have the right, right to express our dismay and displeasure. That's and right. Not, it's, and they're they are being true to themselves. The, the themselves they're being true to is reprehensible, but right, right. But that's it, right? And, that, and those are the consequences. But um, definitely living in a Twitter world, you know, it, you it always feels as writers like we're one bad tweet away from being canceled. You know, you, you drink a little too much one night, and you're in a bad mood, and you tweet the wrong thing, and oh my god, I've seen it happen. Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I've seen something go viral and that author just disappears. That's happened a couple of times. So that I, that I know of. So it's, it's yeah. Yes. <laughs> at, the, at the core, at the core of Paris and all of us, I think there is an instinct to survive. And Paris's life growing up was hard. She had a sort of a ne'er-do-well mother and that's being kind. And she wants to transcend her past. And not just survive. And she doesn't want to be punished for wanting to live. You know, you know, she she doesn't want to apologize for wanting to do more than survive. She doesn't want this to be something that people hold against her. And I found that actually uplifting. I found your book uplifting in that regard. Thank you. And that's that's nice because I know that that this story is really dark um, from many different angles, but she Again, you know, you can't help the life that you're born into. Um, 
And I think, as I mentioned in the book, there are people that are just born into really hard lives and there are people that have it a lot easier. And none of us as, as you know, infants can predict which life that's going to be. And uh, Paris wanted not necessarily to redeem herself. I think she was aware that her past probably made certain things unredeemable, but she wanted to reinvent herself. You know, she wanted to sort of retire the person she used to be and introduce a new person in its place, one that she crafted, not one that was carved out by her mother or the people her mother knew or uh, the apartment that they lived in, you know, and all the things that were difficult when she was growing up. I wanted to know if that was possible. You know, I, I watched a documentary on an abused child called The Trials of Gabriel Fernandez. And it was on Netflix. It's still on Netflix. It's a, and it talks about an eight-year-old boy who lived with an extremely abusive mother. And her boyfriend was very abusive too. But her boyfriend was under the mother's thumb and would do whatever the, the mom wanted. And, and this kid died. He died a horrific death of abuse. And when they did the autopsy, there was numerous injuries um, that no little boy should have ever suffered. And he'd been, and they were old injuries. They were new injuries. He'd had ribs broken, wrists broken, arms broken, concussions, scratches, cigarette burns, everything you can think of had happened to him. And it sparked a lot for me with this book is if a child like that doesn't die and grows up, what kind of person would he be? And is it possible to reinvent yourself or are you destined to follow the pattern that your parent followed and that their parent probably followed and so on and so forth. And so there was an exploration there for me wanting to know, is it possible to break the cycle? I hope we have tiptoed successfully around there. That. There may be some in there. It's so difficult to talk about a thriller without hinting at something or else you're not talking about anything. <laughs> but can it you talk about your, what you're currently work, working on? Because in the, in the sort of the life cycle of a novel, I know that you probably turned this in last year. Yes, and, yeah. And it's being published now. So you're probably, if not done with your next book, getting <laughs> <I> close. <laughs> Okay, I wish. I'm actually a painfully slow writer, much to my editor's chagrin. I am a book every other year author. And if I could write faster than that, I would. Um, I typically don't even have any book idea until all of the edits for the current book are finished. And I finished all of the edits completely in April. Um, so I had a little bit of downtime in between edits. And then, and then of course, April is when, um, you know, all the, all the marketing and promo stuff really, really kicks into gear. And so I've been doing a lot of events and things like that, but I'm, you know, I have a little time because I'm an every other year writer. I am working on another thriller. And again, I'm in that, I have no idea what I'm working on phase. Um, and even my editor knows not to ask what the book's about because I can tell him one thing and that's not what he's going to get because that's happened <laughs> to us before where I've submitted a whole proposal and said, I'm going to write this book. And then a year later, he gets something completely different. Um, so he, he knows like there's no point. Just as, as long as it's a thriller, you're not writing, you know, like a, <laughs> a space opera or something like that. Um, but it's another thriller. I'm always interested in relationships um, I'm interested in, in right now I'm kind of thinking about adult female friendships a lot. Um, and there's also brother, sister sort of things I want to talk about, you know, um, I mean, things you do in the dark was very much a mother daughter thriller. The book before that was definitely about the breakdown of a marriage. 
you know, so um, the next book will have some type of dysfunctional personal relationship in it. It'll be a thriller. Um, there will probably be dead people, uh, which is what I write about. And it's weird when I don't have a dead body in a book and I've only written one book without a dead body and it was really hard to write. <laughs> well, it's crime so, fiction. You need, it you is need really, dysfunctional well, relationships really and you need a dead body. Nobody, right. And so as much as I, in my wildest fantasy, would love to write a juicy, juicy, juicy romance, with a happily ever after ending. And I fantasize about doing that. I can't, I've tried and somebody dies, you know, and they die. And then, or if I'm reading another great romance novel and nobody dies, I'm waiting for when someone is going to die. And I feel like I, what, how is, okay, they fought. So then no one's going to die later, even though they're really mad at each other. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's, and I, this is what I do. I write crime fiction. Someone's going to die. That's, I have to accept that that's what I do. Well, we look forward to future deaths from you. <laughs> Thank you for talking about things we do in the dark. And uh, I look forward, I guess, in 2024, talking to you about your next <laughs> like book. forever away. Thank and, you so much, Nancy. <laughs> and this has been a true pleasure. 